Okay, hi, this is Dan Jurgens, writer and artist of Booster Gold, and you are listening to Funny Books with Aaron and Paul. Is it, is it, do you pronounce the J? Is it Jergens or is it? Yeah, it's a hard J. It's a hard Jurgen. J. Okay. All right. Because I, all my life, I have pronounced that as Jurgens, like, uh, you know, you're a fresh over from Germany or something. And as a matter of fact, if we were sitting in Germany right now, that would be the case. But around <laughs> here, and for pers- purposes of my family, it's always been the hard J. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Well, I will, I will go back and, and correct everyone that I have corrected otherwise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, we are huge fans of your work on Booster Gold. Thank you. Uh, and you know, we, we just talked in, in uh, our, our last week's episode in our regular roundtable discussion about comics. You know, We knew that you were leaving on uh, book 31, and I said, we've got to get Dan on the call and so we can talk to him because uh, we're, we're, we're quite brokenhearted that you're leaving Booster Gold. Well, uh Thanks, I think. <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, uh, with Keith Giffen jumping on board, it, the character is going to be in good and familiar hands. Uh, and there will come a time when I come back. Oh. In the meantime, it's off and on to a few other projects uh, that need some attention as well. Okay. Well, uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about Booster Gold first, and then I want to talk about those other projects. But okay. uh, Booster Gold, you came on on what, issue 15? As writer, that sounds about right. Okay. And, you know, that followed a, a guest stint by uh, Rick Remender, and I forget who the other fellow was who, who did some writing before that. And then Jeff Chuck Dixon. Jo- oh, Chuck Dixon did a couple of Chuck issues. Dixon. And then Jeff Johns kind of kicked off this version of the series. Right. Uh, Jeff Johns as well as Jeff Tapp. Okay. So that's that's pretty good company to be keeping. Oh, you know, of that there is no doubt. And. Uh, you know, just for me, it was remarkable in a way that if you go back to, I think it was 85, when the character first debuted, that, you know, all those years later, we'd still find a way to be working on it, which was a lot of fun. Right. Now, you created this character. Right. Uh, tell me, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what what kind of uh, drew you to creating the character and, and what that, that the initial uh, stories were like back in 85, 86 when Booster debuted? Okay, well, I think that the first thing we have to do is talk a little bit about, you know, what was pop culture like uh, back in those days. Mm-hmm. And it's important to do that because, you know, there was no Entertainment Weekly. There was no <laughs> yeah. There was nothing. There was nothing like this really incredibly intense celebrity culture where you had so many people who were doing whatever they could, just trying to put themselves out there in front of the public somehow. Um, what happened is that during the '84 Olympics, I was watching it at one point, and they again we have to underscore the the times. But one of the announcers was talking about, I believe, a diver. I don't remember for sure. But someone who had uh, some kind of a promotional slash advertising contract set up, and they had not yet even won a medal. 
now we take that for granted. We sort of expect every single Olympic athlete, athlete, actor, actress, I mean, go down the list, to have some kind of an endorsement deal or, you know, to be doing something like that. In those days, that was relatively unique. And when I saw that and heard that, it kind of got the wheels turning, and it wasn't much later that I came up with the idea for Booster Gold, which was essentially who he wasn't a hero for hire, but he was a hero who was in it for the bucks, but was going to kind of make those bucks on the side rather than being paid to, I don't know, go rescue the mayor's daughter or something like that. So over the years, a lot of different people have been on Booster, and uh, basically the characters changed a lot over the years. What's that like coming back to your character that you created that now has taken on a life of his own? Well, first of all, he the, let's examine the question of whether or not he has changed a lot, and in some ways he has. I think we, if you go back to the original series of Booster Gold, which again, you know, we're talking eighty five, eighty six. In his last issue, it was stated then that Booster was going to help usher humanity to a higher level and very much implied that he had a huge and important destiny. So he kind of got detoured for a while when he was treated as the butt of jokes within the DC universe. And I think that it started with 52 and then accelerated in his own series, Volume 2, that is, that there was an effort to kind of restore that sense of purpose and destiny into Booster Gold. Obviously, he is not any longer just all about the bucks and getting the action figures made and that kind of stuff, but it's still a component of who he is, and I think that's part of what makes him different within the DCU. So to the extent that we were able to bring him back and have a good time with it and make him both important and relevant again, it was a lot of fun. I know I personally always loved the character, and I read a lot of those original stories. So when they basically tricked us and made us think that they had killed him in 52, I remember being so upset at the title and then getting so excited to find out what was really going on. Yeah, I think a lot of people were. Uh, It was part of a rollicking good story, number one. And then, of course, at the end of the day, you had... Uh, Booster and Rip Hunter essentially restoring the order of the 52 universes as we know it. So it made them both important players within the DC universe. And as I said, kind of was what started that ascension. And of course, along the way, you had the fun with him being Supernova, which was, you know, a great bit. I, I think the fun of 52 overall is that it successfully told a really good story of what we might think of as secondary and tertiary characters in the DC universe. The story that that you you have told, I mean you've told a, a whole bunch of just, you know, terrific Booster Gold stories over the last, you know, 15 16 issues. You know, we have seen him going back to uh uh Blue Beetle's death and pulling Blue Beetle out of the timeline, which is one of my favorite stories in in, in the series. Um, and then, of course, you know, in Blackest Night, we saw you know a return of the or the appearance of the zombie Blue Beetle. Um, when you when you were writing that, did, were, did you have any concern that maybe those two stories were were too closely placed to each other? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Um, part of what happened there, though, is when we did the first one. And, and the first one was very much written by Jeff Johns and Jeff Katz. We kind of thought, here we go, we'll do this Ted Cord story, and it'll kind of be the last word on Ted Cord. Right. You know, that was before we really knew what was coming down the pike with 
Blackest Night and the potential we had to tap into that. So Blackest Night starts coming together as a DCU event. And the first question that's put to me is, you know, hey, Dan, here you go. Do you want to play ball? And I said, well, you know, let me think about it. Let's see what we have here. And we, we kicked around the idea of, well, okay, if we're going to have Booster Gold, the book, uh, if we're going to do a, something where we feature someone coming back from the dead, there's really only one logical candidate that it can be, and that's Ted. Mm-hmm. And, and so at that point, it kind of becomes a problem, or a question rather, of saying, is there anything new that has left to be said? Is there something more we can get out of the relationship between Booster and Ted Cord? And uh, for me, the, the answer was an unequivocal yes. Mm-hmm. So it became a natural to do. And I really think that the story came out pretty good, that it tied in well with Blackest Night and was one of the stories that had a little bit of soul to it, in part because we also dealt with Ted Cord's funeral, which is something that had never been shown in the DCU before. Right. And, and so I thought that is what made it worth doing. Mm-hmm. Those were some very powerful pages, too. Thank you. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, the friendship between, you know, Blue Beetle and, and Booster Gold ha- has been something that's, that's I, I guess it, it rolled out of uh, their time on the Justice League. Is that right, or did it predate the Justice League? No, it was pretty much uh, formed during the Justice okay. League. And, and I think that there's a sort of a secondary answer to that, which is, if you go back to the let's go back to the eighties again and talk about comics. <laughs> okay, let me, let me think. Can I put on my parachute pants first? <laughs> yeah, uh, there was a distinct movement in the eighties in which comics really took kind of a darker turn, and the whole grim and gritty thing came about, mm-hmm. right? And so there was also sort of a counterpoint to that that was kind of going on at DC at the time, where if you take Blue Devil, Blue Beetle, and Booster Gold, the three Bs. Those books had a lighter, bouncier, kind of a fun sensibility about them. Right. So, yeah, even though the relationship between Booster and Blue Beetle didn't start until Justice League, there was sort of a shared aura, mm-hmm. if you will, between the two characters in terms of the spirit of their books and and presumably what some of their readers were looking for. And, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you because, you know, I was reading comics then, and in my head they were kind of the, the same cut of book. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you, hear you describe it that way because, uh, you know, a lot of times I think back on it, you know, am, am I chicken or am I egging? You know, am I just applying their time on the Justice League prior to that? So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. The death of Blue Beetle, which occurred, you know, occurred in a different set of books, has always, you know – hurt <laughs> because I always enjoyed that relationship between, you know, uh, booster and, and blue beetle. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, seeing it over, you know, carried over a little bit into the booster gold books, uh, right now is, is something that I very much enjoyed. Good. I, and, and I think that, you know, it's a formative relationship in terms of who booster is. So how many times did we see some sort of, a uh, look back on Captain America, Captain America and Bucky, for example. Right. Until, obviously, you got to the point where now we have Bucky alive and bouncing around with Cap. So I think it's always going to be valid to go back and look at what was there, that, that as characters, they were that tight. Uh, I don't know that you do it every issue, but it's something that's always practical to take a look at. So, uh, you know, spoiler warnings on. Uh in the current run of Booster Gold, we find out that Rip Hunter 
is Booster's dad. Right. And which is a terrific reveal, by the way. Uh, the other Rip, way around, Rip Booster is, is Rip's. Son. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Rip, yeah, I'm sorry. Whoops. <laughs> uh, t- terrific reveal, by the way. Um, and then, of course, in issue 30, we got to see future Booster helping out present Booster. Mm-hmm. Um, what's coming up in issue 31, your, uh, your, your, your last issue in, in this run for you? What can you tell us about it? Uh, without giving anything away, uh, I, I think the biggest thing that we had to reconcile in issue 31 very much centers around the late, the relationship between Booster and his sister Michelle, that as you look at the two of them and what had happened in the book, like the previous year and a half, year to year and a half, that that is the, the one relationship that I kind of wanted to put in place in terms of setting it up for the guys who are coming on the book and, and to kind of bring it to what I thought was a kind of the next step in the evolution of who Booster is, how he's maturing and all that stuff. So one thing I've really enjoyed about this series, I tend to be a bit of a continuity buff. And I've enjoyed how you've played in and out of continuity throughout this, the different periods of DC. And in this last story in particular, going back to another character you made, Cyborg, and around the death of Superman, I was really hoping that you would, you know, in a future story, come back to the fact that Booster was beaten to a bloody pulp by Doomsday. Mm -hmm. Another one of your villains that you created that I'm a huge fan of. But I was very disappointed to hear that you were leaving the title soon. Well, you know, as I said, uh, I think the day will come uh, when I'm back and (laughs) we'll deal with some of that. Uh, There is a story out there that is waiting to be told along the lines of what you mentioned, because not only did Booster kind of get beaten to a a pulp by Doomsday, he's also the guy who gave Doomsday his name. If you go back to the Justice League issue, I think it was in the Justice League issue, mm-hmm. where we were dealing with the fight between the JLA and uh, Doomsday. You know, Booster, at that point, Doomsday was just this monster who was kind of raging across the country, and Booster ends up giving him his name. So I want to go back and touch on that at some point, and I think I will. Well, and, you know, talking about, uh, you know, some of these, you know, older stories you've worked on, you've been working in comics since the mid-'80s, is that correct? Oh, earlier than that, actually, since about 82. Okay. And, you know, of course, have you have worked on some enormous stories, you know, The Death of Superman, for instance, which, you know, there's no point in ever killing Superman again because you guys did it right that time. Uh, thank you. I think we did as well. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, just the images were so iconic, and you know, you you look at that uh, cover with uh, Superman's cape on the on the big stick, you know, fluttering in the in the the breeze like a like a tattered and torn flag. Uh, those images just really stick with you, and the, that story yeah, that, has really that, stuck with me. That's by far one of the most iconic images of comic history for the last twenty years. Is that yeah, stick and, with uh, the cape? And would that I had a dollar for every time someone ripped it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> it would. Uh, but yeah. So I don't know if Paul realizes this, but uh, Paul and I are big fans of a lot of the old Valiant stuff, particularly Solar. Okay. And you did a run on Solar for a while, too. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Um, it was – those were back in the days when Acclaim was making an attempt to – uh, kind of upgrade its line, and and they had this very ambitious program called Birthquake, where they were going to take all their books and start shipping them on a uh, twice a month schedule and everything. And yeah, I came on board and did Solar at the time. 
I, I actually remember that run. I, I was a huge fan of Solar back in the day. Um, actually, the, the entire Valiant and then into the Acclaim run. Um, you know, how, how, how did it feel working on I mean, because that character's been around, I mean, I guess not as long as Superman or something like that. Um, but, you know, was there any added pressure as far as, you know, th- that revamping of the line and, you know, it being with the new company and all that? I don't know if the word pressure is is quite the right one i think that uh we're all acutely aware that that we were trying something that that was going to be hard to pull off because typically the only characters whose books came out on a more than monthly schedule at that point were really the more iconic you know popular characters like a superman batman Mm spider-man x-men you know to try and do it with characters who really weren't at that level was certainly going to be challenging. Uh, the, the disappointing, you know, sort of market condition we ran into at that point is, you know, prior to that, there had been this tremendous boom in comics, obviously, and retailers had cases and cases and cases of image books and valiant books, you know, kind of sitting in their basements. And so by the time we got there, I think there was already sort of a retail backlash um, kind of building against them. Not that they were responsible, but it's just sort of it was there nevertheless. So it was definitely a case of swimming upstream. Yeah, I mean, that was a hard time for comics, I mean, in general. I mean, people still talk about that. And, you know, you said they had Image Comics in their basement. They still have those comics in their basement because of, you know, the amount of copies that people ordered and the the amount of overprinting that went on back then. I got into Valiant Valiant from some of that, buying a bunch of these books for 10 cents a piece. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and it's worth noting that, it's it's interesting that somehow they were held responsible for it. Well, at the same time, you go back and you can pick up copies of Wizard Magazine uh, from right at that time. And it was Wizard Magazine that was advising readers not on what books to buy, but on what cases of what books yeah. to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, go out and buy yourself two or three cases of Bloodshot. <laughs> they will appreciate in price. And that you know, that doesn't help anybody in the long run. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, by the time we got there, it was certainly a case of, you know, like I said, swimming upstream. And the tide was pretty damn strong. So uh, all we could do is try and do the best stories we, we could. And I had I had a great time doing so far. I thought the issues I did were really pretty credible and kind of definitely set up to do more with it, but it just didn't work out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, when everyone thinks of that time, we think of the chromium covers and the holograms and things like that. But it, it's worth noting to our listeners that, you know, when it came to, to, the, to the mid to late 90s, you worked on some of the best selling comics out there without those types of gimmicks. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the death of Superman and Zero Hour and um you know, Armageddon 2001, I know, was not necessarily around the same time. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, these were just well-done tales that didn't have, you know, I mean, you know, yes, I know the death of Superman came with the armband that I still have. <laughs> right. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, what, what people think of when they think of 90s comics. Well, not just that, but you also had the option. And if you use the death of Superman as an example, 
yeah, you could have bought the version in the black bag that came with the poster and the armband. There was a little newspaper article, and I thought generally that if you bought that, great. You wanted to open it up. You got your money's worth in terms of the stuff that was inside. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think overall my take on the, the sort of special cover treatments was, you know, if it provided value somehow to the book or was something cool, then great, buy it and enjoy it. If not, buy the alternate version. Where I think it really fell apart is if it became a chromium cover for like an extra two bucks and that's it. And, you know, uh, Superman 82, where he kind of returned, yeah, we had a chrome cover on it, which I thought was really nice. But if you didn't want to spend that money, we also had a version without that cover. And you could buy that as well, normal cover price. You know, the whole thing got a little ridiculous. I, I will say from a creator's aspect, I enjoyed some of the cover gimmicks because it was fun to try and, and you know, draw whatever they might be to make them work. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of there were a lot of abuses in the system at that time. Now, you know, a lot of times when you when you say Dan Jurgens, y'all, another name gets associated. Jurgens, <laughs> sorry, Jurgens. <laughs> <laughs> it's thirty years of bad habits. I got I got to fix in, in in one podcast. Uh, uh, when you when you think of your name, Dan, another name uh, generally pops up, and that's Jerry Ordway. Uh, mm-hmm. You guys have have worked a, a lot together over the years. Can can you talk about that relationship a little bit? Well, we're, you know, Jerry and I are good friends, and um, we have done a lot of stuff together over the years. If it, you know, going so far back as to you know, Jerry inked a couple of covers on Booster Gold, you know, Volume One. Mm-hmm. Um, we did some other stuff. A little bit after that, certainly we worked on Superman together for a good long time. Uh, Jerry would do write and draw one of the books, and I was writing and drawing one of the others. Uh, we've maintained that friendship up until recently, of course, here where he just stepped in to pinch hit for me on a few pages of Booster Gold 30. So, yeah, we've, <laughs> we've been around the block, let's say. <laughs> well, yeah, and I guess it's during those uh, Superman books that you know, I really started associating the two of y'all working together quite a bit. Um, I just want to say, you know, to you know, be the super fanboy that I am, those uh, Superman books were, were some of the my favorite Superman stories that I've ever read. Uh, I just, I really did enjoy your run on the Superman books. You know, I, I thanks, I appreciate that. I think that um, I think we crafted, and this is probably even more true on the stuff we did before the death of Superman than after. Mm-hmm. But I think we crafted uh, a Superman that was really very faithful to the spirit of what Superman was supposed to be uh, or what he was created to be while still making it viable for what the market was at that time. And I certainly remember, and this, again, this is before the death of Superman, where one of the DC editors came to me and said, wow, you know, Superman, that's our best kept secret. And on the one hand, I thought, well, Gene, thanks for liking the book, but does it have to be a secret? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, we always thought that we were doing Superman in sort of a Marvel style with Marvel sensibility while still retaining, like I said, the spirit of who he was. And I think, it, you know, even years later, it was a really strong, credible attempt. Well, you know, when you, when you go back and, and you read some, some comics from, you know, 20 years ago or so, a lot of times those stories don't age so well. And mm-hmm. I have been back numerous times to read those stories leading up to, during, and after the death of Superman, and those books stand up. You know, the, 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 they, those books stand the test of time. 
Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, you know, I, I think they do as well. Um, it, it's harder to look at that stuff now, I think, a little bit for newer readers just because, I mean, you go back and all of a sudden the stuff that was done on newsprint with the old-style coloring and everything, I mean, there's something about it that just, I won't say it makes it feel older than it does, but it, it certainly doesn't necessarily feel like right now. On the other hand, like I said, I, I think it all managed to su- successfully capture um, who Superman was and what he was. And I think there have been a lot of periods where that has not happened. So I'm kind of curious, during this time period, there were a lot of big changes to Superman's life. He got married, he died, his powers and costume changed. DC was really making some, basically taking some big gambles with their most iconic character. Was there anything you brought to them idea-wise that they didn't let you run with? You know, I don't think so. Um, I think we had a pretty good sense of what we could or couldn't do based on what was right or not right for the character. And I think really the, the biggest thing we did was bring it to the point where Clark and Lois got married. And once again, go back to that time, a lot of it had to do with what was happening on the Lois and Clark TV show that was also on. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they were sort of trying to do the progression of a relationship, and we were certainly out there trying to deal with that as well. So, you know, yeah, we we brought it to a head. There was obviously some there were some external circumstances involved with that because once they got engaged, we always saw it as well. You know, maybe you're engaged for five years, or maybe they'll they'll be engaged for thirty years. You know, you don't know with comics sometimes. Um, but obviously it got accelerated. I won't say it got accelerated, but, you know, things happened pretty quick while we were doing it. Right. The stuff like the powers change and the costume change, I think you do that and always kind of realize it is the story of the moment. But within a year, year and a half, you'll not that you'll be back to exactly where you were, but, you know, the more traditional, classic sort of Superman would be back. So, uh, you know, let's depart from the DC universe for just a moment and uh, venture over to Marvel. Uh, you worked on Volume 2 of the uh, Thor series over there and wrote, mm-hmm. what, uh, 79, 80 issues of that story? Yep. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your, your take on Thor and, and uh, what you felt you, you brought to the character over there. Well, you know, before that, I had done a um, uh, short stint on Spider-Man where they had come to me and asked me if I wanted to write and draw Spider-Man. And I went in, uh, did a new Spider-Man series, and it was right in the middle of the Clone Saga. Mm-hmm. And it did not go well at all. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, I wanted to, to find a way to do, you know, tradition, not traditional, but to do sort of like the classic atmosphere of Spider-Man. To, to me, was always, gee whiz, you know, here's Spider-Man swinging out to battle the lizard or whomever. And the reality is, it's almost impossible for him to do that because Aunt May is in the hospital with a blood transfusion and he has to be there and the doctors want him to give the blood transfusion, but he can't because he's Spider-Man, you know, that kind of right. stuff. Uh, and instead we were stuck with Ben Riley and just goofiness and it just did not work out. So that when Marvel came to me a couple of years later um, and said, here, you know, do you want to do Thor? Um, 
I was somewhat taken aback, but, you know, Tom Brevoort was a tremendous editor, and I'd worked with him a bit while I was doing Spidey. I said, well, you know, let me think about it. Um, Marvel had actually approached me on Thor like four years earlier than that, and I turned it down at that time and gave it some more thought and said, come on, let's, yeah, let's try it. Let's go for it. So we decided to do it. I think for me, the way I always wanted to approach it was, you know, everybody talked about Thor being the god of thunder and a god of Asgard. Yet all of Marvel, the Marvel Universe, sort of treated him as though he was, you know, Thor, the guy who lived down the street and around the corner in the bungalow. <laughs> and, yeah, they, they just treated him like a normal hero in a cape. And what I wanted to do was bring that aspect of godhood into the book and use that as part of the character so that if Thor landed on the street in front of you, it's like, oh, my God. I mean, God, that's Thor. He says he's a god. Is he really a god? What does it mean? You know, and that's really what the 79, 80 issues were about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, John Romita Jr. was the first artist, and he was fabulous, and Andy Kubert came in after that, and he was just as fabulous. And so um, I think it was a good, strong run. Yeah, uh, actually, um, I'm pretty happy because I I did start collecting that series uh, when it first came out, you know, Volume 2. And I don't... I don't have most of my comic books from from that time, uh, but they recently just released uh, the second trade paperback of that run. Um, you know, starting with you and John Romita Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I'm I'm happy that they are starting to re-release those in trades um, because I mean it's a great story. You know, they're very nice looking trades, and you get nice big chunks like eight issues at a clip, which is nice. Yeah, and, and it is good to see again and. Uh... You know, I don't. I don't think we ever really countered anything that Stan and Jack did, mm-hmm. or Roy and John Buscema after that, or anything. So I think of it as being actually fairly classic Thor, just again with a bit of a different twist and flavor to it. And those are great books. I I really enjoyed. You know, you you seem to write the characters that I really enjoy. So uh, uh, Thor was was just outstanding. I enjoyed that run. It was a very strong run in the character. Great, thanks. So, uh, you know, uh, you've been in, in comics for a little while. Um, what was your inspiration? What got you into the comic book business? I always read them as a kid. Mm-hmm. And as, as part of that, uh, you know, certainly came to realize at some point that, gee, they weren't just, <laughs> you know, stamped out by machines, that there were actual human beings who were involved in writing them and drawing them and creating them. And by Gosh, you know, somehow they probably made a living doing it and all that other stuff. So uh, certainly that was a strong component that got me interested, and I never lost that interest and was fortunate to, you know, fortunate enough to find my way into the industry. Now, you know, you, you work on uh, on both sides of it. You both write comics and you you draw comics. Uh, where, where did you train for to uh, for for the for your art? I went to the uh, Minneapolis College of Art and Design, uh, was a graphic design major, illustration minor, and just kind of took everything that I absorbed and found a way to make it work within the world of comics. And and did you self-train on the writing, or did you uh, take writing classes? Both. Both. Mm-hmm. And what was your very first book? That I wrote? <laughs> that you, that, yeah, that you, that you uh, got to both write and draw. Okay, that would go back to, again, very early 80s DC. I was um, 
working on a series called Sun Devils mm-hmm. that I created with Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas. Mm-hmm. And Jerry was the writer-editor on the book. It was a 12-issue maxi-series, and his workload had just kind of come crashing down on him. And, you know, the way we had worked uh, was sort of plot, you know, then draw it, then script. And so there was a kind of a collaboration give and take between Jerry and me. And right around issue eight, I think it was, seven or eight, uh, Jerry's schedule got to be too much, and he said, as as editor, you know the characters as well as I do. Do you want to write it? And, uh, and I said, well, I can try. Because I had always mentioned to him, I think, that I had had that interest at some point. And, uh, you know, he gave me a shot, and once I got that under my belt, I, I just kept pursuing it. And it wasn't long after that then that I went to D.C. with the Booster Gold idea, and they jumped on it, and, you know, ever since, I've probably written just as much as I've drawn, and perhaps even more so. So so I've noticed you've made quite a few characters that other people have grabbed onto and run from there. Given the choice on a series, would you rather create a new character from scratch or take one of these iconic characters? Because you've done both. It depends. Um, it depends on, you know, first of all, whenever you're dealing with and I, even if it's not an iconic character, but it's particularly true of like iconic characters. Whenever you're dealing with that, the, you got you have to have the awareness that you know this is a character that is owned by a Marvel, a DC, or somebody else. You know that that you can play on it so long as they let you, and you can write what you want on the character so long as they let you. You know, that kind of thing that there are more restrictions there. If you create something, uh, the restrictions are far fewer. So it, it depends on what you want to do at the moment, and it also depends on if they say, yeah, we want you to do this character, and his name is Popsicle Man, you know, what do you think? That they want to do the same thing as you do with Popsicle Man. Because if, if you and the company as publisher or you and the editor don't have the same goal or, or want to go in the same direction to the same destination – Forget it. It's going to come apart in a hurry. So what are your plans for Popsicle Man? <laughs> Lots of heat. <laughs> are all heat it's a tough world out there for Popsicle Man. So uh, you said that you're, you're uh, leaving Booster Gold after issue 31. What can you tell us about mm-hmm. the projects that you're, you're going to be starting on? Uh, right now I am writing and drawing a 16-page story for Superman 700 which will be out, I think, in about two months' time, mm-hmm. maybe a little mm-hmm. bit longer. Uh, as DC has announced, I'm also going to be drawing a couple issues of DCU Legacies, which Len Wein is writing, and kind of tells the story of really... It, it, I, I won't say it's quite necessarily a, a history of the DCU, but it certainly deals with the legend and legacy of what the DC Universe is. And, you know, it's Greg's Morales has drawn a couple, and Andy Kubert has drawn a couple. So I think it should be a real nice unit by the time it's all said and done with. Um, as they've also mentioned, I am going to be writing, along with Tony Bedard, a uh, weekly series called DCU Legends, which is going to cross over with... Well, I shouldn't say crossover, but it's going to tie in with the Sony online DCU uh, Heroes game Mm -hmm, that they're mm -hmm. going to be coming out with. So we're we're doing kind of a cooperative effort with them. And uh, 
got another project out there that I can't quite mention yet. It hasn't been announced, but it should be very shortly. Uh, that I think will be near and dear to Booster Gold fans out there. That I'll also be waiting <laughs> Nice little tease there, Dan. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's why I'm... <laughs> well, you can tell us. We won't tell anybody. Here, I'll, I'll turn the microphone off for just a moment. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, you guys have anything else? You know, I, I'm just totally appreciative that you took the time to spend with us. Um you know, when, whenever we, we, we talk to someone, you know, we, we try to pick. It's kind of funny because um, no one – when we go seeking people, we look for our favorite writers typically. Um, and, and it's rare that we talk to someone who's both a writer and an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I, I, you know, I, I love hearing both sides of the coin, I, you know, and, and once again, looking at your bibliography, you know, the stuff that you worked on, I, I, I just love – the books that you've worked on, you know, I, I even, I, you know, I love Superman aliens. I loved Armageddon. You know, I, I loved all the Superman stuff that you've done, you know, with the doomsday and kind of the, 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 I guess, official sequel to that original doomsday storyline yeah. that came years later. I mean, you know, I, doomsday I was actually one of the other characters I was thinking about when I was asking, you know, what's it like to come back to a character that's changed because they've changed doomsday a lot from, the way you originally presented him. I mean, the character seems to me like he's become watered down in some of the years since then. I agree. And I don't usually, <laughs> you know, uh, take that large claim to it, but Doomsday, it's, I, I realize what the temptation is, and that is that he's supposed to be a creature of evolution and always sort of evolved to the next level. But at the same time, Doomsday is supposed to be a force of nature, mm-hmm. uh, as raw as, you know, the north wind whipping through the Arctic, that kind of stuff. And I think that is the essence of what that is, and they've gotten too far away from that. Yeah, I completely agree. That's my complaint over what Doomsday's become, and they've brought him in too much. I mean, he was the mysterious force of nature. I mean... That's what made him so powerful as an adversary for Superman. You couldn't reason with this thing. Yeah, and that was the whole point of it. You know, if you go back to that time, uh, one of the places we got criticism was in that the whole fight between Superman and Batman, that Doomsday wasn't smart enough to beat Super, not Superman and Batman, Superman and Doomsday, rather that uh, Doomsday wasn't smart, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I can remember it all quite well. The whole point of it is that he wasn't supposed to be, that Superman had plenty of smart villains, whether it was Luthor or Brainiac. I mean, go down the list. And, and yeah, Doomsday being um, not even animal level, but just this force of nature where nothing would stop him because you can't reason with the wind. You know, when the tornado comes... You don't sit down and have a conversation about it. You don't ask about its motives. It doesn't matter. It just is there. And that's what Doomsday was supposed to be. So and at this Doomsday point, still should be. At this point, if Marvel or DC or anybody out there actually came to you and gave you your choice of any character you could be writing, is there anyone you've done you haven't done yet that you'd really love to take a shot at? Hmm. Um I have even though I did Spider-Man for a bit, I feel like I never did because it was Ben Riley. 
So it would probably, you know, Marvel would probably be Spider-Man uh, or Fantastic Four, which I've always oh. considered to be like the purest concept in comics. It's perfect. I would love to see you on Fantastic Four. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, at, at BC, I've always had a, a love for, uh, you know, like Green Lantern and never really been able to spend much time with with GL for whatever reason, even though Jeff is doing such a remarkably fabulous job with it right now. I'm sure they're going to cut him loose any moment now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you just just dig your heels in. I'm sure that's going to open up just any day. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we're, we're sure that the top brass of all comic companies listen to our show. So, you know, by all means, we're throwing yeah, in yeah. our endorsement of you for the title. If you, need a, if you need a letter of recommendation, we'd be happy to. Uh, yeah, uh, that's good to know. I appreciate it. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on today. I, I, My pleasure. I, uh, I just love that we got to talk to you. You know, we're, we're always like, like, like Paul's saying, we're always kind of throwing names in. You know, who do we want to talk to? And Wayne and I just immediately went. He's about to finish up Booster Gold. We got to have him on. So, uh, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, guys. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely excellent. Thanks so much, Dan. You got it, guys. Bye bye. Thanks again. Bye. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast.